0: If you want to be healthy, common wisdom says that you should eat well, exercise, and get enough sleep. Now, what would happen if you ate flawlessly, exercised religiously, but utterly refused to sleep? You would very soon suffer a complete breakdown. None of the other stuff you were doing to try to stay healthy would make any difference difference. Something seemingly unimportant like sleep would, in fact, prove crucial. Or put it positively, sometimes a good night's sleep can do far more for your mental or physical health than a lot of other more complicated or expensive remedies. Sleep can seem unimportant, but it has serious effects, whether for good or ill. Tonight, my fellow pastors have assigned me a topic that is seemingly unimportant to many of us, but that has serious effects. That is church polity. What do I mean by church polity? Broadly, polity means any binding authority and rule structure, any glue that holds a group of people together. So as a church, we, though many, are one body. But in a narrower sense, polity refers to how authority is structured, uh, to how decisions are made. So, who decides who belongs and who doesn't belong? Or is there any authority outside the church that's over the church and that can tell the church what to do? Those are questions of polity in a narrow sense. Now, this might prove a bit too exciting, so please buckle your seatbelts and hold on to your hats. But this address is actually the first of three in a planned series of addresses on why church polity matters. Tonight, I'm tackling how church polity supports your growth as a Christian. Uh, Later this year, Jamie Dunlop plans to address how polity impacts your ministry to others, uh, and Deepak intends to teach about how polity affects a wide range of relationships. I'll leave it to him to specify what relationships he has in mind. My goal tonight is to show that biblical church polity is a surprising asset to your growth as a Christian. If you want an image for it, you could say that God intends the local church to be a greenhouse for Christian growth. Now, polity is not the sun that gives energy. It's not the soil that provides the nutrients, but it is the structure that keeps in the heat and the nutrients So that those things aren't lost and diffused, it is the structure that helps keep in those nourishing elements to help everything inside grow. Now, in theory, our church's polity is pretty much the same as most other Baptist churches. And I should say that our church doesn't have the structure we do because we're Baptist and that's just what you do, but the contrary, we have the structure we do because we understand it to be taught by Scripture, Hence, I'm going to point us to passages of Scripture for every particular component we look at tonight. Polity is a matter on which many evangelical Christians disagree. This means we need multiple speeds in treating a subject like this. One of those speeds is unity with and charity toward Christians and churches who disagree with us about these matters. We should maximize our partnership with them to the fullest extent that our shared convictions enable us to. You could call that the Together for the Gospel speed. But Together for the Gospel is a conference, not a local church. So we also need another speed, and that speed is believing and teaching and practicing all that we understand Scripture to teach, even if there are other believers who disagree. The proper place for secondary issues is not no place, but a supporting place, Polity is far less important than the Trinity, the gospel, the inspiration of Scripture, and other core Christian doctrines. I did say far less important, right? Far less important. Good. Crucial point. Polity is less important than core Christian doctrines. But church polity is meant to preserve, protect, and promote the gospel. Like the prongs of a ring protect the diamond, How does biblical church polity preserve, promote, and protect the gospel? Here's the answer, and it's the point of this address in one sentence. Biblical church polity makes all of us responsible for each other's spiritual health. Biblical church polity makes all of us responsible for each other's spiritual health. I hope you can already see how that would be an asset to your growth as a Christian. It means that your fundamental job as a church member is to provide for other members' spiritual flourishing, and other members' job is to provide for yours. So we're going to work through the main outlines of our church's polity in three parts. The first is believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. The second is church membership and discipline, and the third is elder-led congregationalism, believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper church membership and discipline, and elder-led congregationalism. First, believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper, and this one will be the briefest. Through believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper, gospel people form a gospel polity. Gospel people, that is those who have been converted, form a gospel polity. Polity that is a structure based on and that preserves and promotes the gospel of Christ. This is how a church comes into existence. We often think about baptism as merely a personal, public profession of faith. And it is that. But it isn't only that. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, it's on page 910. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Verse 38 tells us how Peter, at the conclusion of this sermon, exhorted his hearers. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus died to bear God's wrath in our place, and he rose again from the grave to defeat death. Now, he calls all people everywhere to repent and believe in him. If you've never turned from sin and trusted in Christ, trust in him now. That is far more important for you than anything else I will say in this whole message. It is far more important and foundational. Now, a few verses later in verse 41 of this passage, we see that very many people did repent and get baptized. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, what were those 3,000 people added to? It's the local church in Jerusalem. The following verses tell us how all these new believers lived together as a church. They devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship and prayer. How were these 3,000 people added to the church? The short answer is by being baptized. There's no other action taken. There's no other sort of process or sequence. It's their baptism that brought them in to the church. So we learn from this passage that in baptism, you commit not only to Christ, but also to his people. In baptism, you put on Christ's jersey and you commit to playing for his team. In other words, baptism binds one to many. Baptism is a public commitment to follow Christ in the company of His church. Uh, When you witness someone being baptized, like we've heard encouraging reflections on about baptism testimonies tonight, and that baptism reminds you of your baptism, that's like looking down and seeing a wedding ring on your finger. Your baptism reminds you that you belong to Christ and you belong to the church. You have a new identity in Christ, and that's a corporate identity. You share it. With the church. So now, after being baptized, everything you do represents Christ. His reputation on earth, in some measure, is staked on your holiness. As for the Lord's Supper, we often treat the Lord's Supper also in purely individual terms. It's about me confessing sin, me renewing my faith, me being reminded of the gospel. Now, all that's true, but it's not all that's true of the Lord's Supper. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In verse 16, the word translated participation means to share in something with someone. In the Lord's Supper, we share fellowship in Christ with each other. All together as a body, we experience anew the benefits of Christ's death. In the Lord's Supper, we commune with Christ. And because we commune with Christ, we have communion with each other. Paul goes even further in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Now his point isn't about the mechanics of a a singular, you know, article that's eaten. His point is in the sharing in the meal all together, doing this act all together. A church is born when Christians commit to each other and the Lord's Supper is how we seal that commitment So, we can put baptism and the Lord's Supper together. In baptism, we commit to Christ and His people. In the Lord's Supper, we renew our commitment to Christ and we commit to one another as a whole. Baptism binds one to many and the Lord's Supper makes many one. The Lord's Supper marks us off as a church. It draws a line between the church and and the world. That's why every time we take the Lord's Supper, we renew our covenant with each other by saying it out loud. Because Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. The Lord's Supper makes that commitment to one another, so we say it out loud. Two brief words of application. First, baptism and the Lord's Supper are for professing believers. Every aspect of what baptism symbolizes, from forgiveness to new life, to the gifts of the Spirit. It all depends on faith. It all presupposes faith. Everything that baptism portrays is only true if the one being baptized trusts in Christ. Now, this biblical conviction that we hold as a church distinguishes us from other evangelical churches, uh, churches that practice infant baptism, such as Presbyterians and Anglicans. One serious problem with extending baptism and therefore some form of church membership to infants, is that infants do not and cannot profess faith in Christ. Which means that some people then are starting off inside the church who aren't believers. That will, over the long run, inevitably weaken a church's witness. A second point of application. These two ordinances shape the church, and they show us the shape of the Christian life. From the beginning, the Christian life is one long act of bearing witness to Christ. From the beginning, the Christian life is lived in the committed company of those who follow Christ. From the beginning, the Christian life isn't just about me and Jesus, it's about all of us together helping each other follow Christ. And we see that in both ordinances. Now, the polity that I'm going to keep filling in in the next two points only works When the church is composed of genuine believers, not only that, but the gospel itself is our motive and our means for building up the body, for each of us playing a role in this greenhouse of growth. Second point, church membership and discipline. Church membership and discipline. Church membership and discipline are how we spiritually provide for and protect each other. Now, it turns out we've already been talking about church membership. Normally, baptism confers church membership. That's what we saw at Pentecost. Baptism is how you initially step into church membership. And church membership at its most basic level simply is permission to regularly participate in the Lord's Supper. So, if someone is skeptical that church membership is actually in the Bible, the first place I'd point them to would be the passages we've already looked at that show us this belonging, this commitment, this coming together. Uh, but church membership shows up in all kinds of other places too, and if you're looking for a one-verse proof text, if I had to sort of tie one hand behind my back and just prove church membership from one verse, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Go ahead and turn there. It's on page 954. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, page 954. The broader context here is that the Corinthian church has been tolerating flagrant sexual immorality, so Paul exhorts them to remove from their fellowship the person who's living in unrepentant sin. But he clarifies that he doesn't mean the Corinthians should separate themselves from non-believers who live in unrepentant sin, in verse 10, he says, if you were going to try to do that, you'd have to leave the world. That's not what he's saying at all. And then look at what he says in verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. "'For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge?' So the church has an inside and an outside. The church knows who's in and who's out. Not only that, but in this passage, Paul gives us opposite instructions about how to treat those inside and those outside. Those outside, meaning those who don't profess faith in Christ, are not under our authority. We don't judge them. Now, that doesn't mean we will never disapprove of any action a non-Christian takes, Uh, anything a non-Christian does. Instead, it means we don't have to separate ourselves from them based on their behavior. But then Paul gives precisely opposite instructions for how we relate to those inside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So here's how I would summarize this verse's teaching on church membership. Church membership is a mutual self-conscious commitment between a Christian and a church in which a church affirms and cares for the Christian and the Christian submits to and cares for the church. I'll say that again. Church membership is a mutual, self-conscious commitment between a Christian and a church in which a church affirms and cares for the Christian And the Christian submits to and cares for the church. I'll just briefly unpack that phrase by phrase. So membership is a mutual commitment. It's between all of us together. It's a self-conscious commitment. You can't join a church by accident. You can't wake up one day and discover to your surprise that you're a member of a church and you didn't know it. And in this commitment, the church affirms and cares for the Christian. Every time we vote to bring someone into the membership of our church, we affix our official collective seal of approval on someone's claim to follow Christ. That's what we're doing every member's meeting. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 that if someone bears the name of brother but lives in unrepentant sin, we need to withdraw our fellowship from them. Someone who bears the name of brother needs to live like a brother. By calling someone brother or sister, as we do with one another as church members, we're affirming their claim to follow Christ. And the church also cares for the Christian. When you join a church, that church commits to care for you, to bear your burdens, to speak truth to you in love. Every time someone joins this church, when we take that act, we're all saying, everything the Bible commands us to do for each other, we're going to do. For you. Now, that is a promise we will only ever keep imperfectly. That's why we make that promise, as we say, relying on His gracious aid. We'll never do it perfectly, but it's a promise nonetheless. Finally, church membership is a relationship in which a Christian submits to and cares for the church. When you join a church, you submit to it. Paul says this relationship involves judgment. Our culture's number one mantra is, don't judge me. But when you join a church, you give others permission to judge. And God in His amazing provision and loving care for us actually authorizes the church as a whole to judge its members. If that doesn't sound like a blessing and a benefit to you yet, stay with me. I hope it will. This brings us to church discipline. Church membership and discipline are two sides of the same coin, they go hand in hand. In the broadest sense, church discipline is everything we do to help each other grow. Theologians often distinguish between formative and corrective discipline. Everything we do together as a church is part of formative discipline. So every Sunday, we gather to hear the Word read and preached, to sing, to pray, to confess our faith, to teach each other's children, to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is such an encouragement to our faith. And every time you share a verse of Scripture with someone or in any way encourage their faith, you're practicing church discipline. Uh, in that sense, formative discipline is the spiritual equivalent to a football team running sprints together or an orchestra practicing their repertoire. It's working together to progress together. Church discipline is also corrective. We, as church members, have committed to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Those are biblical commitments. They echo passages like Philippians 4.2, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. The vast majority of church discipline consists in private, gentle, face-to-face words between church members. Anytime you help another church member trust in Jesus more, love Him more fully, obey Him more readily, you are contributing to church discipline. And anytime those efforts involve helping turn someone from their sin, like the end of the book of James tells us, you're practicing corrective church discipline. If you could somehow calculate total church discipline, that would be the vast majority of it. And the more public formal elements only make sense if that is our regular practice with one another, if those are the kind of lives we live together. But now what happens if you try that privately and it doesn't work? What happens if you admonish or entreat someone and they persist in their sin? Well, If a church member keeps choosing sin over Christ, there's a number of New Testament passages that tell us what to do. Two of the clearest and fullest are Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 5. Let's stick with 1 Corinthians 5, since we're already there. Just look up at the first five verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When should a church take this action? A church should remove a member from their fellowship when and only when that person's unrepentant sin means that the church cannot continue to affirm their profession of faith in Christ. Church membership affirms someone's profession. Removing someone from membership as an act of discipline withdraws that affirmation. And the goal in all of this, the whole process, up through and including that removal, is that the person would repent, that they would turn from sin and prove to be a genuine believer so that they would be saved on the last day. Now, what does all this about membership and discipline mean for your growth as a Christian? It means that as a church member, you are your brother and sister's keeper. All of us are responsible for each other. All of us are accountable to each other, and all of us are accountable for each other. Church discipline is our commitment not to give up on you, even when it looks like you're giving up on obeying Jesus. Church discipline is our commitment to love you enough, to tell you hard things, that you don't want to hear when you least want to hear them. In church discipline, the whole church becomes a safety net for your discipleship. Church discipline is the whole church loving you enough not to deceive yourself when you're saying you're a Christian and you're just not living like it. So church membership makes all of us not mere consumers of church, but producers and providers for the church. What does it mean to be a church member? It means you're a member of the body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul uses that metaphor of a body to talk about the church, the whole point is that the body needs every member. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 to 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So, if you're a member of this church, that means the whole church needs you. God has given gifts to you that He hasn't given to every member of the body. Without diverse members and gifts, there would be no body. Sometimes, As church members, we can approach life in the church like, okay, here I am, I've signed up, I've ticked the boxes, now give me a job to do. Give me some kind of ministry to serve in. And if we don't find a niche in the church where it seems like our gifts can be put to use, it's easy to grow frustrated and discouraged. Now, there's a real challenge and a legitimate struggle there. But I want to kind of drill down to the mindset behind that situation and flip it. If you're a member of this church... You don't need somebody to give you a job. You already have a job. That job is providing for and protecting and loving and serving and caring for the other members of this church. And depending on your gifts and abilities, depending on the sort of opportunities and constraints of other responsibilities you have, there are 10,000 legitimate ways to do that. That's part of the wonderful diversity of the local church. If that kind of initiative to provide for others spiritually does not characterize your involvement in this church. Just a few questions to help you and encourage you. What new service could you begin? What relational feelers could you gently extend? What need could you notice and meet? What one member could you simply befriend? Get to know them. See how you can pray for them and what needs you might be able to meet in their life. Now, what does all this have to do with church polity? Well, as I said, polity is the rule, the authority, the glue that binds us together. And very many evangelical churches simply don't have formal church membership. Without getting too technical or detailed, I would say there's a crucial difference, both theologically and practically, between having formal church membership and not having formal church membership. Membership is a self-conscious commitment, and it's a relationship of authority, While churches without formal church membership can practice a lot of what we're talking about, they can embody a lot of what we're talking about, it is basically impossible to practice formal church discipline. If you're not in in the first place, if you don't sign up to be under authority, if you don't sign up for the possibility of being judged, no one can exercise that kind of authority or judgment over you. In that sense, church membership is a prerequisite for a church to actually be able to obey all that the New Testament says we have to do. And there are lots of practical consequences here. If you take away formal church membership, you take away accountability. You take away the teeth from the church's teaching and fellowship. You take away a mirror that makes all of our lives more visible to one another. You take away our express commitment for each of us to care for each other. My first year of college, I was part of a campus ministry, but I bounced around to different churches. One week here, skipped a couple weeks, one week at a different church. It wasn't until my second year of college that I started regularly attending one local church and then joined the church that same year. And the difference in my Christian growth was massive and immediate. All of a sudden, my sins were a lot more visible to me because they were a lot more visible to a lot of other people. All of a sudden, I had all these Christians who were committed to my growth. All of a sudden, I was accountable to and responsible for this concrete group of Christians. I didn't know everyone in my church. It was a huge church, uh, but there were Christians whom I saw weekly and almost daily. There were people I knew that had the same commitment as me, and it made a massive difference in my Christian growth. That, those relationships were deeper. That commitment was more concrete, and it was more all-encompassing than the relationships in that campus ministry. Church membership and discipline are how we provide for and protect each other. Third and finally, elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism. Little hyphen between elder-led. I'll unpack what those terms mean in a minute, but first, here's the big idea. Elder-led congregationalism is Jesus' discipleship program. Elder-led congregationalism is Jesus' discipleship program. I'll start with congregationalism. Congregationalism, big word, simple concept, it's the biblical teaching that a local church as a whole has final earthly authority to organize itself, select its leaders, and determine who its members are. Now, we've already seen an element of congregationalism in 1 Corinthians 5. In verse 4, Paul tells the whole church to act when they're all assembled together to remove this unrepentant individual from membership. Similarly, though likely in response to a different situation, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul instructs the same church about how, uh, about someone whom they had excluded as an act of discipline. Here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 to 7, for such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul says the punishment was enacted by the majority. It wasn't by a pastor alone. It wasn't by the elders as a whole. It wasn't by a single member. It wasn't by a small group of members. It was not by any authority outside the church or over the church from without. It was not by a bishop or pope. And so, similarly, Paul tells the church as a whole to forgive and to welcome again because the person's clearly repentant. Congregationalism also means that the whole congregation is finally responsible to protect, preserve, and promote the gospel. In other words, the members as a whole are finally accountable for what is taught and therefore for whom they appoint to teach them. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul issues this charge, this rebuke, not to a church's pastors or elders, but to the whole church. So we as a church are convinced that Scripture teaches congregationalism. Scripture assigns to the local church as a whole the responsibility to determine who's in and out and on what basis. This is why we have members' meetings. This is why we vote, to receive and dismiss members. You could theoretically come up with other forms for how to do that, but Paul talks about decisions made by the majority. A vote, it's not like we got this from our sort of, you know, uh, the polity of our nation. A vote is a pretty simple, direct way to ascertain what the action of the majority is. Paul says majority, so we vote. We vote to receive and dismiss members. This is also why so much of what happens in members' meetings is something that the elders have thought about and prayed about, and then we bring a recommendation which puts the final decision in the hands of the whole congregation. And again, this is why with significant decisions, uh, especially significant ones like voting on Charles Hebman as an associate pastor, we put forward a nomination and we wait. We invite conversation. We invite feedback. Uh, there's certain decisions that we feel it's fine for the congregation to kind of make on the spot, but especially weighty, long-term ones, we give time for the congregation to be able to own that, to think about it, pray about it, talk to the elders, talk to other members. Let's talk briefly about how elders fit with this. I know that for many of you, this is the first church you've been a part of that was led by elders. The New Testament uses the terms elder, overseer, overseer and pastor interchangeably, elder, overseer, pastor. They all refer to the same role, the same office. And the New Testament presents a consistent binding pattern of having multiple elders in each local church. You can see all of this in Acts 20. Go ahead and turn there. It's on page 929. Acts 20. In verse 17, we read that Paul called the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. Then down in verse 28, if you flip over, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is talking to elders. That's what verse 17 tells us. In verse 28, he refers to them as overseers. And when he says their job is to care for the church, that Greek word could be more literally translated as shepherd or pastor. The work of elders is to pastor. Elders' job is pastoring. So our church has 28 elders. This means we have 28 pastors. Only a handful of us are paid to pastor full-time, but we all pastor. We don't have a quota of elders that we're trying to fill. Instead, we as elders are constantly on the lookout for men who are qualified for this work and who are already doing it without the title. Now, what are elders meant to do? Just a very brief job description. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.2 says that elders must be able to teach God's Word. So in more public and more private ways, elders teach the congregation God's Word and together share overall responsibility for the teaching ministry of the church. So, elders might teach elder addresses like I'm doing now or Sunday evening devotions like we normally have. Elders might teach course seminars. They might lead us in prayer. They might lead small groups. They might do one-to-one discipling and Bible study. All those are expressions of elders' ministry of the Word. 1 Timothy 3.5 says that elders are to care for God's church. The term there has the flavor of overall oversight, guidance, direction, leadership the elders are to lead the elders are to take responsibility for the overall direction of the church first Peter 5:3 says that elders are not to domineer over the flock but to be examples so elders are to care for and attend to the spiritual maturity of the church as a whole and of every member of the church that's what Paul says take heed to all the flock and elders are to provide overall leadership and direction of the church. Elders are to teach the Word and set an example of obeying the Word. As Charles Spurgeon once exhorted a room full of pastors, we must cry not, go on, but come on. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12 help us put together the elder's job and the congregation's job. Paul says in these two verses, referring to Jesus after He ascended and gave gifts to His church, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Shepherds and teachers, that is, elders, same office, equip the saints. All the saints, that is, all church members, all Christians, do the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ. Every Christian is called to minister to others, and elders equip the church to minister So the whole church has a job, and the elders equip the church to do that job. The whole church has a job, and the elders equip and train and teach and model. What's the difference between renting a home and owning a home? One major difference is that when something breaks, you are likely to have a much greater interest in and learn much more about What it takes to fix it if you're renting and something goes wrong you call your landlord you call your building manager all you care about is getting the problem solved that's over to them but if you're the owner you've got a much bigger stake in the problem how much will it cost to fix you care because the repair comes out of your own pocket can you learn how to do it yourself And avoid paying somebody to do it for you? Or what about, is this the kind of problem that only requires a short-term fix? Or if you're willing to spend the money and the time and the effort, is there a way to fix this that will set you in good stead for 10, 20, 30 years? Those are the kinds of questions you ask when you're a homeowner. Congregationalism makes every member of the church an owner, not a renter. If you're a member of this church, if you're a member of CHPC, this church belongs to you. This church is yours. Elder-led congregationalism is, in a nutshell, Jesus' discipleship program for you. As a church, we generally try to go light on programs. In part, that's because the whole church is the program. The responsibility that we all have for one another is a key means of growth. The difference between a congregational church and one that isn't is like the difference between learning a workout by watching someone do it and learning a workout by doing it yourself with someone there to guide you. Elder-led congregationalism spreads responsibility all around. It means that our elders are accountable to explicit biblical qualifications. That's not necessarily going to be the case in a church where the leadership structure is not directly patterned on and submitted to Scripture. If the title of the office of the church leaders is not found in Scripture, neither will the qualifications be. Elder-led congregationalism also means that there's a sense in which the elders are accountable to the congregation. We're accountable to lead, to persuade, teach, inform, instruct, and patiently labor for consensus. There is no structure that can guarantee the health of a church. Please don't hear me saying that with anything in this message. No structure can guarantee health. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But while no structure can guarantee health, elder-led congregationalism does guard against the abuse of authority. All the most important decisions in the life of the church are finally in the hands of the whole church, which means the elders cannot simply impose our will on the congregation. And elder-led congregationalism also makes all of us accountable. That is accountable for the health of the church. It makes us responsible. And as every parent knows, responsibility and growth go hand in hand. We train our children so that over time they will be able to handle more responsibility. And we give them more responsibility so that they grow into it. In that sense, congregationalism treats every Christian as an adult, every Christian as responsible. And having the responsibility is a spur for all of us to grow into it. To conclude, I've got two more points of application from the whole message. Uh, The first, value in a church what Scripture commands of a church. Value in a church what Scripture commands of a church. When someone is considering whom to marry, they often have a list. That list might be more implicit or explicit. That list may or may not line up very closely with what Scripture says a godly husband or wife is. Similarly, when we date a new church, we all tend to have a list we bring with us. And that list may or may not line up very well with Scripture. Certainly no church is perfect, so please scratch perfection off your list. And again, all the things we've been talking about tonight are not, are not, are not the most important things about a church. A church can have the right polity but deny the gospel. A church can have the right polity but have ungodly, unqualified leaders. And on the other hand, a church with a less biblical polity can have biblical preaching, loving fellowship, deep community. So none of these things are guarantees. Very often, joining a church involves hard trade-offs. But precisely because of that, I'd encourage you to think and pray and seek counsel about whether to join a new church well in advance of any decision you'd have to make. For instance, before you commit to a job in a new city, research churches there. Talk to an elder about the decision. Talk to church members you trust and who know you well. A second, final point of application, praise God for His wisdom. In arranging the body of Christ as he has chosen. By that I mean both the structure of the church and the fact that he's given us all as gifts to each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God has arranged the body so that you would supply what others lack. And so that others would supply what you lack. God has given the church to you as a gift, and He's given you as a gift to the whole church. Whether you're the church's pitcher or first baseman, catcher or shortstop, you're a member of the team, God has given you Assignments to do, and He's given you the resources to do it. He's given His Spirit to dwell in you. He's given brothers and sisters to encourage you. He's given elders to equip you. Whatever roles in the body God has assigned to you, do them with gratitude and joy. When you do, you magnify the glory of the one who has created us and redeemed us, the one who sustains us and cares for us, even by giving us each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wise plan of giving each of us as a gift to each other. We thank you for the way that even the structure of the church helps to magnify those gifts and point them towards serving each other. Father, we pray for... Uh, that you would help us to see ways that we as individuals have fallen short of this. We pray that you would help us as elders to grow in equipping the saints for works of ministry. Father, we pray that we would experience the life of the church, not fundamentally as a burden or an obligation, but as a gift. May you grant us to receive the gifts of one another joyfully and gladly. Would you cause us to give to one another generously? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.